This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. And I have uh, entitled this lecture to respect oneself as a creature, finitude, dependence and letting God love us. Um, the title, uh, to respect oneself as a creature, uh, the title of this talk and maybe uh, a few more, because I think there's a lot, a lot to go at with the idea of our creatureliness. Uh, it comes from a poem, uh, by the tobacco farmer, writer, conservationist Wendell Berry. The poem is called Healing, and you can find it at the outset of a collection of essays called What Are People For? that I meant to bring and hold up so you could uh, see it, but it's a, it's one of those poems that's like four pages, so I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to just read the lines that are around uh, the line that I chose for the title. So he says this, the task of healing is to respect oneself as a creature, no more and no less. A creature is not a creator and cannot be. There's only one creation, and we are its members. So it, it, it keeps going on. And he he's talking about other things than exactly what I'm, I'm talking about tonight. Uh, but I, I quite like the language that he uses here. I found it inviting and intriguing. Um, uh, if it's something worth pondering about, that our, our healing is in part in respecting ourselves as creatures. Uh, members of the one creation. This is a way to our flourishing. And the healing I think Barry is talking about is not maybe a literal healing of an illness or a wounding, uh, but a, a faulty way that we think of ourselves, our place in this world, and how we engage with the rest of the world we find ourselves in. And those sorts of questions, how we engage with the world we find ourselves in, are significant questions right now <laughs> for for many people living in the Western world. There's a lot of uh, a lot of sort of our hot button pressing uh, issues revolve around this question uh, in in some way, and the question of what it means to be human, and how we ever however we go about answering a seemingly simple question like what does it mean to be human. Uh, a sufficiently, and it's seemingly simple, but it's deeply consequential and uh, can fill many volumes of books. But a sufficiently Christian answer has to include the truth that humans are creatures. We belong on the creaturely divide, the creaturely side of the great divide between God and everything that is not God. We are on the not God side of things. We are part of the creation. Uh, and, and, and Genesis 1's a very poetic, uh, way of structuring the creation account. All creatures, uh, animals and people, things that crawl, things that swim, we all kind of show up on the same day, on the sixth day. So we're all members of one creation. Humans are distinct, unique, uh, given a distinct task and a dignity as image bearers. 
Uh, but we're also just inherently and unalterably embodied creatures, which means we're finite, which means we move through time, which means we're vulnerable, and what I want to talk about some more tonight, we're dependent. And these are truths about our existence that aren't always exciting. Um, They don't get a ton of positive press. Uh, But I want to explore them, because perhaps Barry is onto something. Embracing them, respecting them, is a way to our flourishing uh, and our healing. And it's a unique, unique, we're in a unique moment, the sort of post-industrial, digital, digitalizing world that we live in, where this uh, respecting ourselves as creatures uh, maybe has unique challenges. But I don't think it's new to us. There's a a Christian leader uh, from the south of France, from around 130 to, he lived from 130 to around 202, so quite a long time ago, in a very different place, a guy named Irenaeus. Uh, of Lyon, he named a struggle, this, this struggle, this fight against creatureliness as something that was alive and deeply problematic in his churches all the way back then. And he, he I'm going to read from him. It's a little clunky. I don't know if this is his way of writing or if it's, this is what happens when your writing gets translated uh, hundreds of years after you die and people think you're a, a, a more dense writer than you actually are. But this is what he says. He says this, People who cannot wait for a period of growth, who attribute the weakness of their nature to God, are completely unreasonable. They understand neither God nor themselves. They are ungrateful and never satisfied. At the outset, they refuse to be what they were made, human beings who are subject to passions. And by passions, they're emotions that overtake us. He says they override the law of human nature. They already want to be like God the Creator before they even become human beings. They want to do away with all the differences between the uncreated God and created humans. So technology might uh, enable us to forget our dependent and vulnerable nature as creatures, at least for particular seasons of our life. This is not a new struggle. Uh, This is not a new issue uh, on the scene of human history. Um, and it's clear that Irenaeus is kind of unsympathetic with those who are unwilling or un, uh, unable or impatient with their creatureliness and accepting our creatureliness as a good thing, not just some hindrance that we have to overcome that's getting in the way of our self-actualization. He wants us to not flee or fight against our limitations, but embrace them. Uh, and embrace the gift of this, again, evocative, interesting language of becoming human. Uh, and I think this is important for us. Again, we live in this technological world, but we also live in a world that one uh, philosopher that I, I found very helpful, um, he's actually, I used him in a previous lecture and also pointed out, he's bald and bearded and kind of like has red cheeks as well. Uh, so I sort of, I sort of feel like we're, we're brothers in some way, but this guy, O. Carter Sneed, in this book, uh, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, a very uh, surprisingly, uh, it's, a very, it's a very good book. Uh, but he speaks about our age as an age that is forgetful of the body. And he says, because uh, we live in an age that defines the human being fundamentally as an atomized and solitary will. It equates human flourishing solely with the capacity 
to formulate and pursue future plans of one's own invention. And so his point is that if there's any limitations, including natural limitations, that we feel as limited, vulnerable creatures, those are problems that we have to overcome. We have to get out of the way. Um, and I, so again, I encourage you to consider what Sneed says. But I, I'm saying all of this by way of introduction to what I'm more interested in talking about this evening, uh, which is really owning our creatureliness and thinking about our creatureliness, our dependence, uh, together. Because I do think Barry is on to something. Uh, that this respecting our creatureliness is part of our path to human flourishing. Um, and so that's what I want to offer this evening. And briefly, where I want to go, I want to offer um, some limited, uh, because human beings are limited creatures, I'm going to offer uh, some limited reflections on the matter of our creaturely dependence. And I, I want to do that by looking at this very fascinating thing that most likely we all did in the first moments uh, after we were born. Something that, from what from what I've gathered, this is what all all humans engage in. This is the first human quest uh, that we engage in moments after we're, we're born. And then after we look at this, I want to con- encourage us to consider some literal navel-gazing. Uh, which maybe will make sense uh, when I get there because I want to talk about belly buttons because um, I think our belly button might have something to remind us that is something we're quick to forget. And then moving from there, it might feel like a hard turn or, uh, or, or an unexpected turn, but I, I want to consider the question of what God thinks of us and really through, I want to frame it through the question of whether or not God likes us in our particularity. Um, Because I think if we wrestle or engage with our creatureliness, we have to engage with the fact that we're particular creatures. And we have quirks. We have uh, things about us that are interesting that maybe we don't always like, um, but that that are part of us. Um, And and I I say that because I I know I don't always like myself (laughs) in my particularity. And over time, as I notice those things and dwell on those things, it makes it harder for me to believe that God would like me. Um, And so, again, I think if we want to adequately look at creatureliness, we have to engage with our particularity. And what, as creatures, what might the Creator think about us? Does He like us? Lots of people will readily admit that God loves, sort of something He's obliged to do, uh, in sort of the Judeo-Christian Western uh, tradition, And he loves people kind of as a broad category, sure, and he likes other people. But if we narrow it in on us as individual people, uh, particular creatures, yeah, what does God, what God, what might God think of us? Um, I sometimes feel as though God sort of has this divine toleration policy towards me. You know, like if you go over to a friend's house when you were a little kid and it's very clear your friend's parents don't like you very much, but they'll put up with you and allow you to be there because you're with the friend. Uh, sometimes I, 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 can, I can feel that way uh, about my own creator. Um, and I don't, think it's theolo- I don't think it's theologically defensible is what I'm going to get at. But I, I, I'm sympathetic to it, and I, I want to I consider that. So those are the places I want to go tonight. First human quest, belly buttons, and how does God... Think about us. Does God like us? And so 
I want to start this consideration of human dependence, this part of our creatureliness that's unavoidable, by looking at babies, considering babies. And I not only want to speak about acknowledged uh, dependence, I want to engage in an act of dependence, so to say. Uh, I want to actually just read the, the first four, the opening paragraphs to this book, this wonderful book by Andy Crouch called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological Age. In fact, I tried for a while to summarize these, these, these four paragraphs and some, some later ones, and I just thought, like, he says it so much better than I do. Why don't I just, why don't I just read straight, uh, straight from him? And I've actually talked about these, the same phenomena, uh, that newborns engage in, uh, in a pre, in a, in a previous lecture I gave him, but he just has his own way of talking about it that I've, I quite, I quite like. So I'm gonna read a little bit. So this is, <clears throat> this is not me, this is Andy Crouch. Um, he says this. Recognition is the first human quest. After an ordinary delivery, after the first few startled cries, newborn infants typically spend an hour or so in the stage doctors call quiet alert. Though they can only focus their vision roughly 8 to 12 inches away, their eyes are wide open. They are searching with an instinct far deeper than intention. They are looking for a face. And when they find one, especially a face that gazes back at them, they fix their eyes on it, having found what they were most urgently looking for. Recognition is the primary task of infancy. Feeding, crying, and even sleeping are just the support system for this most essential work of figuring out who we are and where we are by making contact with other people, seeing them seeing us, gradually beginning to build our sense of self through their eyes. As we nursed, our eyes found another pair of eyes and held on to them. When we were handed over to a father or a grandmother or an aunt or a cousin, we found their faces as well, gradually distinguishing them from one another. We looked at them with the steady, uninterrupted gaze of a baby. And because we were a baby, so very helpless and so very unable to cause harm, with those magnificently large eyes and that impossibly soft skin, they looked back at us with the same endless attention, unhindered and unafraid. Crouch goes on, I know this happened for you as it happened for me, because if it had not, you would almost certainly not be reading these words. The developmental psychologist Edward Tronick demonstrated this in a widely replicated experiment called Still Face, in which infants and toddlers sit across from their caregivers who've been told to avoid facial expressions and responses to their children. The videos of these experiments, experiments, which last only a few minutes, are wrenching to watch, as the adults feign indifference to the child's presence while the children exhibit greater and greater degrees of dysregulation, writhing in frustration and ultimately collapsing in distress. That is the result of just a few moments of deprivation. When children are deprived of this kind of recognition and mutual attention for months or years, they may possibly survive but they do not thrive. End of end of uh, Andy. There's something delightfully wonderful, but simultaneously frighteningly vulnerable about this first quest that we as human creatures undertook. 
long before we ever saw our own face, developed language, or had any sense of a stable self, we were on the hunt for the eyes of another. This research implies that for us to have ever gotten to the place of being able to develop those capacities, seeing our own face, having language, a sense of self, uh, which presumably everyone listening to this does, we first had to be engaged by the face of another. So if you've ever had the privilege or challenge of holding or just being around a newborn, you don't have to be a neurobiologist to see dependence, human dependence on display, complete dependence upon others for every need. Babies are completely helpless in this often adorable and then uh, exhausting manner. And of all creatures, humans are in a state of dependence for a really, really long time. Uh, if you just consider us to some of our, our brother and sister creatures, which is probably theologically inappropriate to say and wrong. But giraffes are born able to run. They hit the ground, they come out, and they can run. Elephants can walk in one hour. Uh, and a duck, more or less, also immediately can walk upon birth. But it takes humans an average of 18 months to develop the ability to walk. And during that time, we need someone to carry us. This infant research that that Crouch talks about points to a deeper, though less obvious form, uh, and a quite significant form of creaturely dependence. I I really like his words. This is the first human quest. Figuring out who we are uh, by making contact with other people, seeing them see us, and gradually beginning to build our sense of self through their eyes. Uh, another researcher who's done work in this area spoke um, uh, spoke about this this process as a dance, a call and response between the parents, the caregiver, which is most often the mother, especially early on, and the child. Um, I went ahead to say, you have to be addressed as a subject if you are ever to become one. This way of understanding human development emphasizes, um, uh, <clears throat> sorry, this way of, of understanding our human development emphasizes that we as individual particular selves don't ever exist in isolation as sort of a solitary will. Uh, a solitary sense of self apart from relationships that we enter into later by force or by choice, but that as embodied creatures, we're always already embedded within relationships. And in fact, we are dependent upon those relationships if we ever are going to develop into the individual particular selves. So we are dependent all the way down as human creatures. Uh, in reading about this, I came across uh, an old uh, African proverb that sometimes is uh, summarized as Ubuntu. Uh, it was made famous by Desmond Tutu, uh, which is just, there is no me without you. Uh, the teaching uh, of this is that the essence of humanity is tied up in others and in interconnectedness. I am a person through other people. Uh, and I think it doesn't need much explanation from me or from other neuroscientists, but this doesn't really stop 
<laughs> for, for newborns. This is part of being a human creature. Seeing ourselves in others' eyes is how we continue to develop and understand ourselves as people, as we move through life, as we move from a state of complete dependence into seasons of independence and interdependence before, if we live long enough, we return again to a season of, of dependence in our old age. We're always interacting uh, with those around us. We're always embodied and embedded creatures. And this is something that is really marvelous. It's, it's, also, it's also very vulnerable. Um, but it's something that's easily forgotten uh, in an age like ours that sort of perpetuates and is characterized by the myth of the self-made individual. And this is where kind of thinking about our belly buttons might actually be good for us, some literal navel-gazing. The ideal of the self-made individual, um, I think is off, at least reflecting on my own life, was was most uh, appealing during seasons of when I was emerging into adulthood. Or you could... I could look back, and I can say this, like fledgling uh, in, into adulthood, heading out into the world. Uh, and in a, a really wonderful, kind, wise um, theology book, which I think are words you rarely hear about uh, theology books. But in this book, uh, theology professor Kelly Capick, it's called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. I... I really liked this book. I, I will go on record here and saying I like judged it because he's a Presbyterian theologian, so I didn't know what to think of it. And uh, it's, I quite liked it. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, but he, um, he shared some advice that he gives to his students, uh, especially in their first few years of college as they head home after having their first real taste of independence, of moving out from mom and dad's roof. And even if you're nowhere near uh, that moment in your life, uh, if it feels very far away, it's still worth considering. Uh, It's because this season of life, emerging into adulthood, sort of the college years, uh, is is a mixed season of life. Uh, Often still financially dependent upon, upon parents. Young people have left the house to taste Independence and sort of uh, self-actualization in, in some sense for the first time. So they kind of have one foot, uh, and, and they, they taste that uh, during the school year, uh, during the summer and holidays. They have to go back home uh, where they don't taste that independence anymore. But, so they have one foot in the world of their childhood and another foot uh, in the world of adulthood. So they're sort of back and forth. And Capric writes, regardless of how healthy a relationship any of his students have with their parents, returning home is complicated. Uh, and I find this as someone who's 41 and is past this season, and I believe I am a, an adult uh, when I'm around my parents. It still is a complicated uh, dynamic, because whatever role the child played in the family system, whatever uh, role they take, things have changed, because that child has changed, and sort of the stasis that a family gets to at some point where everyone does certain things is radically disrupted when a member leaves it. But then when they come back, they maybe come back a different person or a changed person, it causes disruption uh, in the family. 
and parents can naturally, and I, I'm very sympathetic with parents, much more sympathetic with parents now than I was 10 years ago, uh, want their children's kind of to slot back into their previous role uh, that they had in the family, which of course is very difficult and very frustrating uh, for children. So Capic's advice to his students is very simple. Remember you have a belly button. Go take a shower and remember you have a belly button. Contemplate your belly button. Literal gaze, literally gaze at your navel. Uh, and it's easy for us, whether we're in that season of sort of emerging into adulthood and sort of planning a path, a trajectory for our life, or whether we're quite far along on that path already, the, the, the myth of a self-made person uh, is very pervasive and can be very easy to believe uh, if we're successful and competent and healthy. And so Capic has a longer quote from two other theologians, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon, who are reflecting on uh, the biblical commandment to honor their parents. And they say the following thing. They say, nothing is quite as ontologically revealing as our belly button. By noting that we are creatures, creations of our mothers and fathers, the Decalogue tells us we have life as a gift. We are begotten, not manufactured. No wonder some of us despise our parents, for they are a visible, ever-present reminder that we were created, that the significance of our lives is not exclusively self-derived. So our belly buttons can tell us something that can be fairly obvious, but understandably and often easily ignored. Again, we owe our existence to others. We are very dependent creatures. We have been dependent upon others for long seasons of our life, and if we live long enough, if we live through seasons of health and vigor and strength, which never last, uh, if we live long enough, we will be dependent again. This is part of having a body. This is part of being vulnerable. This is part of being dependent. And our belly button can be a reminder to us that this is part of our lot as creatures. And some of us find ourselves in kind of the mid-season of life with lots of strength, lots of capacity, independence, and vigor. And if we're given long enough, we'll find, again, we'll find ourselves growing in dependence on others. And uh, um, uh, Sneed, in What It Means to Be Human, speaks about this, this process of life uh, as, as an arc of disability. We all find ourselves at some point on an arc of disability. Uh, and this truth is written into the structure of our body, in our belly button. So Capic says the following. He says, it's our body's way of reminding us that we are not self-made people. We are not separate islands. We are not rugged individuals. Instead, we are inevitably and necessarily bound together with others. It has been so from the beginning and will always be. Each of us is someone's child, whether we know their names or not. All of us owe our existence not simply to God, but to other human creatures. And, of course, our relationship with our parents can be very complicated and can be very difficult, can be very fraught. But I, th- I, I think Capic's point, uh, and it's a very simple practice of remembering we have a belly button, uh, can be helpful for us to remember that we are creatures. We are always dependent. Um, 
And so talking about babies, newborns, talking about our belly buttons, I'm going to move uh, to the, the, the last section, which will be a little bit, uh, I want to camp out a little bit more about this idea of letting God love us. And does God like us in our particularity? And I, again, it might seem unrelated to the questions about our, our creaturehood, but in my 10 years of, of living in this house, of listening to people come and talk about their lives fairly openly, as well as reflecting on my own internal monologue for 41 years uh, of life, I, I'm convinced more and more that whatever it means to respect ourselves as creatures, we have to reckon with our own particularity. What it is that makes me me and not some other member of creation. And in particular, how my particularity relates to my life with God. What does God think of my particularity? Uh, maybe I can put the question as simply, as straightforward as, does God like me? Again, as I said before, God, we, I, I don't think it's hard for many people to think God is love. Well, I mean, it can be. Like, maybe I shouldn't have said that so flippantly. Many people believe that, that God loves most people in the world, but to like something has sort of connotations of preference and choice uh, that, that are slightly different, have less of an obligation uh, to it. And if I'm honest, for a decent amount of my life, I haven't always liked myself, consciously and unconsciously. Uh, I have longed to be some other person with some other body, with some other brain, in some other place, doing some other probably more fulfilling, interesting thing. And this habit of mind, this propensity to rather be someone I'm not, I can, it can, you know, it can go on a spectrum from being pretty innocent daydreaming um, to being some deeply, you know, troubling self-rejection or self-hate. Uh, but either way, wherever it is, I don't think it's a practice uh, or a habit of mind that respects ourselves as creatures. So again, Kelly Capick, this uh, unexpectedly kind, wise, thoughtful Presbyterian. Um, Theologian in a book, I, I, again, I do heartily recommend. You're only human. Um, he lays out certain ways that the gospel and the Christian life have been presented that actually seem to to underline, to highlight, to make more plausible the sort of self-rejecting, self-erasing uh, voices that we can have within us, or that other people can have said to us. There's a way. We, the gospel and, the, and our life with God has been presented that are almost like a theological rationale for God not actually liking us, but for God kind of having this like uh, divine tolerance of us. And he says it often sounds uh, something like this. Uh, the first is that God is holy and loving. But second is you are a sinner. The third is God hates sin and can't be in sin's presence. The fourth is, but it's all good. Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, which means God no longer sees you, but he just sees Jesus. just sees Jesus' blood. So those are the four points. God is holy and loving. You are a sinner. God hates sin and can't be in sin's presence, but it's all good. Jesus' blood was shed on the cross which means God no longer sees you, but he sees Jesus instead of you. 
Now maybe this sounds familiar, or maybe it sounds like um, like an exaggeration. And to be clear, there's some truth in these statements. Uh, I don't think they're all wrong. God is holy and loving. We are sinners. God does uh, hate sin, and Jesus did die on the cross uh, for us. But there's a way that it's it, it's said that I, I think is uh, is off pretty significantly. Some traditions can do such a good job at highlighting the theological truth that we're sinners that there's no place left for us to understand our deeper identity as creatures made in God's image with dignity and value and very good work to do. And that as these creatures, we were made for fellowship with God. That being said, we are still sinners. We're sort of this mixed package. I love... Uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of the founders of Libri, his image of glorious ruins uh, to describe the human condition. Things that are true at the same time. There's a way that the Christian faith can be presented where it just sounds like you're just ruined over and over and over. So hearing a message like this once or twice or maybe every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night and often throughout the day from your parents or your youth leader or from somebody really can leave one with the impression that God, if God only sees me in Christ, does he actually see me at all? Does he know me? Does he want to know me? Would he like me? Is the gospel this divine toleration policy and I mean he probably likes other Christians I think we could all agree that he likes Tim Keller and missionaries but does he like me Uh, that's a different thing so Capic writes this he says sometimes it is the non-Christian who is first to raise these seemingly awkward questions looking at the Christian faith they ask do I have to stop being me in order to become a Christian Answering this question may be trickier than most people realize. Dismissing such questions as self-absorbed or individualistic is often just a way of avoiding them. Rugged individualism may be the particular temptation of Western culture, but that isn't the same as asking what place particular persons have in the kingdom of God. So I think these sorts of questions are totally understandable, especially... If our life with God and, and, and the good news of the gospel are presented in ways that are kind of very similar to those four points. And I, I think what's theologically most troubling about it is it really divides the work of God as redeemer uh, from the work of God as creator. There is this hard line between them. And God the Father is often presented as wrathful and grumpy, but it's Christ who is compassionate and loving So it's that same dynamic. Jesus is your friend, and you go to his father's house, and his father doesn't really like you, but he's letting you hang around and play because you're with his son. The father is cold and distant, which is sometimes how people understand holiness, but really disinterested. He is an easy, easily offended perfectionist who's willing to put up with us as long as we're with Jesus. And again, I think this this way of life is this this way of presenting life with God is theologically questionable. Actually, I just think it's wrong because um, it pits the Father and the Son against each other, which violates a biblical truth that God is one. 
And there are so many passages in Scripture uh, that highlight the Father's deep, deep love for His creation. Even the most famous Bible verse that most people in North America, or maybe a lot of people in North America, know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Um, there's many other passages uh, in Scripture about this that I, I think highlight highlight that. But I also think it's theologically troubling, not just because it separates the work of God as creator and, and redeemer, but it has something backwards, the relationship between God and sin. Sin is fundamentally opposed to the presence of God. Sin can't stand being in God's presence. But it's not really the other way around. To say that God can't stand being in the presence of sin... I think undercuts the divinity of Christ that's on display in the life of Jesus, who as God incarnate knowingly walked with, talked with, ate with, and befriended deeply sinful people. It's holiness that's contagious. It's not, it's not sin that, that kind of ruins holiness. Holiness is stronger and more powerful than sin. It also just downplays the truth that the Holy Spirit dwells within sinners and helps transform them uh, into saints. It doesn't wait until they arrive at sainthood and then uh, and then dwell within them. So it's sin that can't stand being in God's presence. Capic writes this. It's a little tight, but I, I think it's 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 good. Where he says the gifts of the Son and the Spirit are not what secure the Father's love for us. They're not the thing that make us likable and bearable to the Father. He says, but they are the fruit of his prior love for us. So the Son and the Spirit show us that the Father loves us. And this way, this kind of four-point way, uh, it does sort of make it feel like it's just problem-solving. Where it's we, it's us as humans in our humanity, and not sin, that's the problem that God is dealing with. And it overlooks uh, the fact that the God who saved us is the God who created us. So before sin enters into the world, there's a vision of human beings in the early chapters of Genesis as being good, which has connotations of moral goodness, but are also it's a word that has delight and aesthetic beauty to it. We forget God's pleasure and delight and satisfaction with his creation. And I think one of the most theologically rich uh, accounts of this uh, um, is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd Jones and um, is it Iago or Jago? Whoever the there's a the artist is one of those like Sting or Bono just goes by one name so he's impressive. But listen to this. Listen, I, I think this is really unbelievable. And actually thinking also about what was said before about our first human quest, what he talked about, that we're looking for a face. I love, I, I don't think that was conscious to cellular joints, but it's, it's right here. So this is um, what she said. This is her, her rendition of, of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. 
And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness. I'll stop there. I could keep going. This is on the shelf here at Labrie. It's a good read. A friend of mine uh, said that this sort of saved his faith through seminary. Um, but Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, also speaks in a similar way and uh, about at, at this word tov and God looking at his creation and seeing it's good, seeing in all its peculiarity as good. He says it's like an artist who paints a painting and stands back and looks at it and says, I like this. I enjoy this. I like what I've made here. And so sin is the problem. Not our creatureliness, not our particularity. And part of our life with God is growing and discerning what parts of us are sinful, and what parts of us are just our own particularity. Because sometimes it's hard to know the difference because sin touches every part of us um, and uh, it can, can affect so much of us. But again, the problem isn't our humanity, it's not our creatureliness, it's not our particularity, it's not the things that make us us and not other things, it's sin. One theologian speaks about sin as vandalism of shalom, right? This picture of creation as a good thing and sin comes and vandalizes it. So God is profoundly upset with that and the story of scripture is God's remedy of that. Sin perverts damages and vandalizes his good creation. So back to Capic. He says, whenever fallen humanity's sinfulness becomes not just a theme, but the chief theme in our assessment of humanity, it prevents us from appreciating the particularity of God's work in individual humans. It disconnects redemption from creation and encourages a form of self-loathing and shame among God's people. God's love is not driven by ignorance, like that he doesn't actually know us or doesn't actually see us. But God's love is driven by delight and purpose, seeing you as his own lost sheep in need of a shepherd. He likes how he made you, and his overflowing love now pours out towards you, his particular creature. He is about rescuing and renewing you. So our life with God is not an attempt to run away from ourselves, but becoming free from sin, which defaces and vandalizes and deforms us. And we participate with sin. That's our part of our, our problem, too. We're not just victims. We're also perpetrators uh, of that as well. But the goal, the idea here is be free to become our true selves. Um, life with God uh, is this growing uh, uh, in um, the trueness of who we are. And I love how C.S. Lewis puts this uh, dynamic um, uh, the, towards the end of his modern classic, Mere Christianity. Um, I, I have another lengthy quote on which I am very dependent upon. So just get cozy while I um, read a little bit about what he says here. So he says this. Uh, and when he says new men here, he's talking about um, uh, about new creation, about, new, about Christians, people who have been uh, transformed uh, by God. So he says this, You must not imagine that the new men are, in the ordinary sense, all alike. 
To become new men means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves into Christ we must go. His will is become ours and we are to think his thoughts, to have the mind of Christ, as the Bible says. And if Christ is one, and he is thus to be in us all, shall we not all be exactly the same? It certainly sounds like it, but in fact, it is not so. It is difficult here to get a good illustration. I'm going to interject. I think his illustrations are actually, I would say they're good. Move on. Because, of course, no other two things are related to each other, just as the Creator is related to one of His creatures. But I will try two very imperfect illustrations, which may give you a hint of the truth. Imagine a whole lot of people who have always lived in the dark. You come and try to describe to them what light is like. You might tell them, if they come into the light, the same light will fall on them all, and they will all reflect it, and they will all become what we call visible. It is quite possible that they would imagine that since they were all receiving the same and all reacting to it in the same way, they would all look alike. Whereas you and I know that the light will in fact bring out or show up how different they are. Or again, suppose a person knew nothing of salt. You give him a pinch to taste and he experiences a particular strong, sharp taste. You then tell him that in your country, people use salt in all their cookery. Might not he reply, in that case, I suppose all your dishes taste exactly the same because of the stuff you've just given me is so strong that it will kill the taste of everything else. But you and I know that the real effect of salt is exactly the opposite. So far from killing the taste of the egg and the tripe and the cabbage, it actually brings it out. They do not show their real taste till you have added the salt. Of course, as I warned you, this is not really a very good illustration because you can, after all, kill the other taste by putting in too much salt. (laughs) Whereas you cannot kill the taste of a human personality by putting in too much Christ. I am doing the best I can. (laughs) You're doing very well, Clyde. It is something like that with Christ and us. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors of history. How gloriously different are the saints. So our particularities as unrepeatable individual creatures when they're restored in the light of Christ and have been salted by the Spirit they're real sources of delight for God so to bring this to a conclusion I want to read two more quotes dependent on two more um, more articulate thoughtful gifted people who make regular appearances around here in lectures and discussions Uh, and the first is um 
an Episcopal priest from the 60s who's also an amateur and enthusiast baker, and I believe has written Cook. Cook. Well, there's so much more. Uh, who has written what I, to my knowledge, is the only theological cookbook, uh, a book called The Supper of the Lamb, where in a chapter where he's really mostly talking about onions. Uh, he's spending a lot of time talking about onions. He, um, he concludes it by saying this. Um, I'll just start here. Hopefully you will never again argue that the solidities of the world are mere matters of accident, creatures of air and darkness, temporary and meaningless shapes out of nothing. Perhaps now you have seen, at least dimly, that the uniqueness of creation are the result of continuous creative support, of effective regard by no mean lover. He, being God, he likes onions, therefore they are. The fit the colors, the smell, the tensions, the taste, the textures, the lines, the shapes are a response. Not to some forgotten decree that there may be as well onions as turnips, but to his present delight, his intimate and immediate joy in all you have seen, and in the thousands of wonders you do not even suspect. With Peter, the onion says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Yes, says God. Tove. Very good. Tove is the word from Genesis 1 uh, in Hebrew where God pronounces his creation good. And the second quote um, comes from Mary, uh, uh, Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead, which is a series of letters from a pastor named John Ames uh, to his young son. And so uh, he says this. Calvin says somewhere, that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience. That metaphor has always interested me because it makes us artists of our behavior. And the reaction to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental in the ordinary sense. How well do we understand our role? With how much assurance do we perform it? I do like Calvin's image, though, because it suggests how God might actually enjoy us. I believe we think about that far too little. It would be a way into understanding essential things, since presumably the world exists for God's enjoyment. Not in any simplistic sense, of course, but as you enjoy the being of a child, even when he is in every way a thorn in your heart. I'll I'll stop there. I'll limit my reflections on creatureliness and our dependence. Uh... And God's thoughts to us uh, there, but uh, yeah, we—I'm happy to, to have a conversation. I'd be uh, open to respond to any questions. If you want more tea or another one of the nice cookies, feel free to grab one, um, or if you want to go to bed. But um, yeah, so the floor is open, and we'll stay as long as anyone would like to talk about any of that. Peter, can you provide the citation for Irenaeus? I. I, 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 it's in against heresies, um, but I, I, I don't actually have it here, but I can. I'll shoot you an email. Yeah, uh huh. It sort of sounds like a heresy, right? Like an early Christian contemporary heresy.
Yeah. So, so um, you talked about kind of the goal of trying to identify what is sin and what is just our Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you had thoughts on kind of how how we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd also love to hear from other people who've heard that question about the yeah, I think the the how do we differentiate the parts of the parts of us that are sinful that and then compared to the parts of us that are just the particular way God made us um, and are delightful. I mean, I I think uh for me uh relationships have been really really helpful. Uh patience uh <laughs> with my with myself um uh, like over time um because i i think sometimes things uh that i've thought are just like me um actually have roots someplace like much deeper and maybe they're not necessarily like sinful but they are so this is just like this is a random thing well, it's not random. It's from, or this is a particular thing. How would I say that? Um, when I was in college, like high school and college, I loved listening to like this <clears throat> strange music. Like before emo was like a mall thing, it was like like emo, like punk, heart, like all these like indie labels. Um, though we didn't use indie, it was before indie was like the term. And it was all about like, we call it, it was like the scene, you know, is what it was. And like I loved, yeah, no, we were pretty, we were pretty cool. Um, really cool. Um, uh, but I loved the music. Um, and I, lo- I, I mean, I spent so much money on, all of it and it was like this is a big part of who I am I like these bands I'll drive long distances to see these bands I'll have like bantering relationships with with them and like that was like our friend group was like we all like this music together and yeah I think getting a bit older like having more distance from those years like as much as I like I still some some like a friend and I, a, an old college friend and I, have been sending each other songs and like, I can't believe we liked it. Like this is really some of this is really like just not very good. Um, it has not aged well. Um, and I, so I think what I thought was something that was like particular to me, my own makeup, my own whatever. Like I just think I had a hunger to belong somewhere, and felt very much. Uh, uh, like I didn't fit in a lot of places, and so this was this was my like alternative group where things were a little like edgier and artsy, and I can't even describe it now without feeling kind of silly about it. But like, so I think that was a part that was something, and I don't like regret that, and it wasn't necessarily. Um, that, I mean, I think I did spend too much money, and I did make some stupid decisions anyway with that group of people. But I do think, like, a sense of alienation, like, internally. Like, I don't know where I belong, which I think is part of the human, like, living in a fallen world. Like, uh, we're exiled <laughs> from, you know, like, we're not, and we're, like, looking for places. And so I think um, I had just overly invested uh, my 
sense of self and like in this particular thing. And then I, I think I kind of crushed it, like like not not in like the positive sense of like oh I crushed it, but like um, or totally crushed it, but like I destroyed it because it's like it's not made to bear that much weight. Like it's just, I mean, it's fun, it's good, but it was like most like people have we've all just kind of moved on. Um, so I that is an innocuous, I think. Um, sort of example of that but I, I think like I continue to see the way my own um, that one was sort of but my own like my own sinfulness whether it's my pride um, or um, yeah like unforgiveness or bitterness like it just plays itself out in things that I think are central to me, I, I think it's something that's hard. I do think it's something very hard to sort of talk about in a lecture. I think it's something that happens through friendship and pastoral conversation, maybe like 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 spiritual direction or or or, um, or time with your tutor um, by uh, Lebrie. Um But I'd be curious to hear if, uh, how other people think of those dynamics. Because, but then I've all, you know I think I've also heard. I've seen people um, sort of swing the other way. There are things that are just like their own peculiar gifting and and makeup that they then have to be like, well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm like kind of done with that. And that's that's a very like that's sad, I think. And um, and there are times I think where God asks us to let go or you know to to put things down uh, for some other reason that maybe we know or aren't always clear of. But um, I'm just sort of rambling now, so someone else rescue me and say something. Uh, I'm not going to rescue you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems to me like the, the things that are just... Um, sometimes we say, well, that's just me, as if that's just how God made me, and that's a justification for whatever, whatever I feel like doing. And don't want to yeah. And to me, I think we're always we're always trying to form our identity in things that we control, mm-hmm. rather than because it gives us control. That's sort of the essence of idolatry. So like, I'm about this. This is me. This thing over here. Being a musician, and you know, um, whereas any number of these like really important things about us that are particular to us are like like maybe important, but they are still superficial aspects of our identity. Has to be the foundation of, of knowing that I'm the image of God, knowing that I'm loved by God, knowing that I'm belong to Christ, and then and then all those interesting, like personal you know, giftings or quirky things the way God mainly are are um, kind of held in light of that. To, to me, I think it's a uh, very helpful to um, reflect on Thanksgiving and to be thankful and to, and to, and to very, in a very disciplined way thank God for the particular things that he's given you about your personality because of the way in which if we can recognize something as a gift from God we're not making that thing into our central identity. 
um, because we're acknowledging God as there's a giver behind it. There's a giver that's more significant mm-hmm. than, uh, to my identity than the thing itself. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those one of those things that if it's if it's given given to God and held in light of who He is and then my identity in Christ, then then I can actually just really embrace those things and enjoy them for what they are. Around. They're not your, they're not the core of your identity, but they are gifts mm. that are an aspect of your identity. Yeah. Um, as long as they're held in that sort of tension, then they're not they don't destroy you. The very same thing can be like a wonderful gift from God that I'm really grateful for, or it can be just something that completely dominates me and, and uh, makes me hate other people. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and that's really helpful. Um, while you were talking, it, it just—I mean, maybe this isn't exactly like what you were asking, but. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think even just the way certain people who lead churches or communities or there's certain, some, like, there's a way that, um, well, I, I, you know, my brother is very extroverted and very gregarious. And I mean, he has a, a rich internal world. He's not like a shallow person, but he could just be with people all day long. And, like, he works in, a, in an evangelical world where that is like the idea, you know, what I mean? or that's like an unarticulated, maybe it's not clear, but like that's the ideal of what it looks like. And my sister-in-law is, uh, yeah, a, has a very rich internal world, uh, sp- very rich spiritual life, but is much more introverted, is exhausted by people, um, and loves people serves people, cares for people, is amazingly attentive, um, very, very pastoral. Um, but she can only kind of go for so long. And so in sort of some of the circles they're in, sometimes it feels like she's a little bit lesser because her purse, like there's not a space for that. You know, but then I, you know, and I think about there's other church traditions that I think my brother would just be like judged as like, I don't know, like, like there's like, he's too extra, you know what, there's other traditions that value kind of this like quieter, contemplative, thoughtful, and I just think there just needs to be space for people to be, I mean, this is just one aspect of someone's personality, maybe not as much of their particularity, but, or their, you know, but it's like they have to be free to be who they are and not conform to an, an unarticulated or maybe articulated model of what Christian maturity looks like. Mm-hmm. Christian maturity looks like you sit on an airplane and the person sits down next to you and you immediately start evangelizing to them. Like maybe you actually just need space on that airplane ride to be not, <laughs> you know, there's just like different ways. And like, so I think there has to be, like, I, I love that. I just love that line about like how. What is it? Gloriously different all the saints are. Um, glory, yeah, gloriously different are the saints. Like just colorful and different, and finding commu- like church communities that are for that. I, I think is anyway. That was just the thought why Ben was talking. Which, um, yeah, so anyway, yeah, uh, uh, Dick. I think I saw. I was giving your example. Interesting because you have these two sort of temperamental. Directions that you just described. 
a good way of thinking about it is that this is this is my temperament, this is my am, but God may want to improve both. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways in which God wants to tweak his extroversion and her introversion. Yeah. And and make it more <coughs> so so it's yeah. the question is what is actually when you see something wrong, we may run up with this these gifts or these tendencies for as long as we can remember so we can't imagine ourselves without them but that doesn't mean they shouldn't perhaps be tweaked yeah or changed or transformed yeah changed yeah definitely yeah yeah or even who we're hanging out with yeah because that's different too yeah yeah no that's good yeah Marty well I was I really just the very last example you gave of parent enjoying their child while being very aware of the child's weaknesses, right, the child's sins, but actually liking the child. Not just, yeah. not just loving them, but the parents meant to love their child, but really, really liking them, loving them. That is, it, you know, it, that's really helpful. Um, and, of course, that's the metaphor that's just throughout the Bible. God is our Father, and we're his children and, and the Yeah, it may, yeah, what you were saying there it makes, I, I think something that's been helpful for me is just sitting with, um, uh, in, uh, Galatians 4, Paul, I, th- I think it might even be 4 4, I'm not sure, maybe it's 6, I'm not sure. Uh, but it, he's, he's saying that like, God the Father spent, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, by which we cry, and the, or the, and the Spirit cries forth, Abba Father. So it's like, the whole Trinity shows up. It's one of those moments where it's like, you can't depict this without the whole Trinity right there. This is what, you know, put pressure on early theologians to kind of come up with it. But it's like, they're there, and it's like the Father sends the Spirit of the Son so that we can speak to the Father in the way that 
that Jesus did, and and the, like that, and it's like the Spirit speaking in us, even when we. I mean, it's not like this. It's it's that kind of both end. Like we're Paul is speaking, and the Spirit is speaking to know God as our, our as our as our Father, who 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 delights in us, and you know, like thinking of of Jesus at. I, I, another time where the whole Trinity shows up is Jesus's baptism, and you know the voice of the Father there is that He's, you know, this is my Son in whom in whom I'm well pleased, and yeah. Um, that yeah, for those of us who, um, uh, yeah, are in Christ, like that is that is something that we can we can grow in, we can sit like that has been a rich verse for me to just sit and really ask ask. God to send his spirit so that I would be able to speak to him in that way, to, to speak with sort of the confidence of, of no, it's not confidence isn't even the right word, like, um, but speak to God in such an intimate, intimate way with, you know, and I know Abba isn't the same as like Papa or something, but like there's, there's an authority as well there too, um, but anyway, that you're talking there just made me think of that verse and sitting with with that verse has been a very um mm-hmm. and, yeah. and even the idea of even with the what the New Testament says about God's discipline mm-hmm. of his children. When you think of a parent who's child, but that God's it's not punishment. The word discipline in, in the New Testament is training, training in righteousness. And again that that's motivated by love and by seeing how how we can how we can grow, how we can become more yeah. than we want us to be. But but that it, but that's in, in love too. And again, I think again, any parent that I, I have memories of having to discipline children that was so painful. Yeah. You didn't want to, but you knew you had to. Mm-hmm. And and because you could foresee if this child continues and yeah. Love and who most of the time delighted. Yeah. Continues yeah. in this sort of pattern without it being being checked. They're not gonna. They're not gonna be good people. You know? yeah. yeah. And even the same with past. I mean, like it, for me, it's easy to think like, well, the uh, the opposite of love is is anger. And so anytime God shows up, it's like the or anytime God is angry, it's because there's no love there. Well, I, I actually don't think that's true. I think. You know the opposite of of of, of love is indifference mm-hmm. and just sort of apathy. And so when we see like you know Paul in Romans or in other places talking about God's judgment, God's wrath against ungodliness, it's not just because God dislikes everything and God's you know cranky and just mean spirited. It's because like the Father saw a world that was very good mm-hmm. and sin has damaged it, and we've been both uh, partic- we participate in that sin uh, and then we've also been on the receiving end of, of that sin and so that that is something that gets a strong emotion because like a strong reaction because God God is love like um, and, yeah did you have your hand up Michaela? Or? Yeah I um, I remember reading in something Eugene Peterson wrote about how God changes not the goal but growth is the goal and and I think about this in particularities like I have to change that I have to change that I have to change that but like if the idea is growth and from growth like there is transformation not just like 
that you made me think about like, like there's lots of different if this it might seem completely unrelated to what you were saying so but <laughs> it just just where my mind went yeah there's like so many different ways that um uh the bible talks about atonement and god removing our sin from us and one of the ways that i i don't this was not my idea i've heard this from someone somewhere else i just can't remember where is it was sort of like like Part of why God has taken it away, like, has gone to such tremendous lengths to remove your sin from you is because it's actually not, like, the most interesting thing about you. Um, and the fact that you can just dwell on all these things that you wish you could change or that you hate about yourself, that you've done wrong, is is actually not living into the, the life that... Um, comes from what from what Christ has done for us. It's sort of like disagreeing. Like he's like, look, nothing is more interesting than you living a life free from sin and like like flourishing. Stop getting so fixated on all of your your faults. Like I've done a lot of work. Uh, I went pretty far to remove this from you, uh, to carry it to carry it away and to carry the judgment of it away. And that is. I, that fits in with pretty much all the major like uh, theological atonement models. So hopefully, it, uh, but I, I've just found that helpful for me to like let go of some stuff that I was like so fixated on. But yeah, before Ben, I, th- I think I saw Peter next. Uh, uh, a, a, few, a few things uh, you, you were mentioning uh, love and wrath, uh, Rudolf Otto's uh, idea of holy. I don't think this is Rudolf Otto's uh, words, but he refers to the idea that uh, love is quenched wrath, which oh. I think is really kind of fascinating uh, idea to kind of think about, oh. especially with respect to God's holiness. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea of Father, uh, and I'm thinking of this just because I'm again teaching Latin to eighth graders. Uh, in the Roman world, the pater familias is not exactly yeah you know yeah. Kind of father knows best this is someone who you don't mm. walk on eggshells around but yeah. you know that this person does have mm-hmm. the power of abs- you know absolute power like the death yeah. mm. and, uh, and, and I think we can tend to soften that image yeah. a lot yeah. just to suit ourselves and, uh, and I think you need to be careful about that yeah. uh, because uh, it can get too you know, soft around the edges. Uh, but, uh, but also, the, uh, uh, and this idea of atonement, uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think in Deuteronomy, or, or one of the Pentateuchal books, uh, 
it speaks about the Egyptians, the death of the Egyptians being the atonement for the Israelites. And, mm. and, and I find that to be sort of... Well, I don't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, and, and I think it's, mm. it, it's kind of a riveting passage. Uh, I, I, I think I can find it. Uh, but, but I think you know, all, all these discussions can sort of carry us in, in a, uh, in, in some, sometimes a too gentle direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think we need to be just kind of aware that we are still, still dealing with holiness out there. Yeah, yeah, ways. yeah. Yeah, I know that's good. Yeah. Jen, were you going to You said Ben's first. I just said Jen. Oh. You can go. I have already. Oh, it's spoken, Jen. <laughs> you have a polite fight about it. Um, well, I, I was thinking, I saw an article for the first time about two days ago about the idea of seeing through seeing us through Jesus actually being questionable. I had never seen, I'd never been introduced to that because mm-hmm. I was always taught your fourfold view of the gospel mm-hmm. and that God sees us through the lens of Jesus. And I didn't, I didn't realize that, that it was even something that could be questioned or should be questioned. And to see that as something that is so profoundly negating of each person as an individual. And that's the sort of thing that I've carried around inside myself for years. Uh, but I think about like the idea of figuring out sin versus particularity. We have a lot of awful theology that is given to us. Um, you know, For me, for years and years, I, I was lonely because something was wrong with me. Because God wasn't enough for me. And reading in Tim Keller and seeing that loneliness is a function of being human. Adam was lonely not because he was bad, but because he was human. You know, and I think it's just even getting to, to the roots of, of some of that stuff that just goes so deeply, you know, into where it's like the Pharisees that tie on these heavy burdens that are too hard to carry and don't lift a single finger. They don't mm-hmm. extend a finger to lift them up. And, um, you know, really sort of breaking down years of bad theology and replacing it with truth about God. Mm-hmm. But even knowing that that's possible to question it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah. Um, so many. I'm really uh, fascinated by. First, I want to make fun of that first of all because I just think I think that um, sort of want to defend this idea that you, that the Lord that the Father sees Christ when He sees us, but not in the not in the sense that negates personality. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not. It's not as if you know when He when God looks at me, He sees. Jesus' love for Colorado olives and uh, you know, whatever, whatever Jesus' particular tip, you know, perfect, you know, he, it's it's his righteousness that that God sees, which is the only reason why any of us why there's such a thing as salvation. Uh, but it's not um, the Lewis quote is so helpful there because it says actually when Jesus when the Lord sees each of us in the light of his own son's righteousness, we're even more ourselves, you know, we're even more ourselves. He still sees Jesus, but he sees us. If not, we're lost, you know? But, but, uh, 
but it's Jesus' holiness which then mm-hmm. actually makes our own personalities yeah, distinct and, and, and blossom. And that, that, that to me, I, I feel like there's two ends of the roof to fall off. You know, mm-hmm. One of which is to say, like, God looks at us and only sees Jesus because there's nothing delightful about any of our personalities and it's just, you know, as, as if God looks at all of humanity and sees us all as clones. Um, that's clearly wrong. <laughs> uh, but then the other, the other side to fall off is like, well, no, like, Jesus' righteousness doesn't really matter too much. God just likes us all so much. Um, and we are standing before him, and he just delights in everything about us. <laughs> like, that's not true either. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's there has to be some nuance there. And, uh, to right, you know, to stand in the righteousness of Christ is to, is to, to not have our personalities negated, but to be actually turned on. You know, like, uh, I would, that. Just I had just a totally different depart, sort of a departure thing that I was really fascinated by, which is just why is it that love and like have such different connotations to us? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't even know if this is a biblical question or not, but like why is love such an abstraction mm-hmm. and like something that God is obligated to do and something mm-hmm. that He has for humanity and it's this big huge thing and then like. Is so hard to conceive of because it has to do with particular need. You know, like yeah. What delight? Like, yeah. Can we not think of love in a way that's particular? Or I, I don't know. That's just a anybody. I don't know. Yeah. No. I. Th- I'm. I. J- yeah. I. Um. Yeah. I'm. I'm definitely not saying God doesn't love us and only likes us or something like that. But, <laughs> um, like. No. There's just. A, I. I don't know. I mean, that's what Catholic spent. I just liked how he started. I mean, that's where he he started his book, and just trying to put a slightly different way of talking about like God's delight or God's joy in his, uh, in what he's made. And um, yeah, I mean, I think even the fact that people just assume yes, God is love, is I would you know most certainly a a byproduct of like of Christendom of sort of mm-hmm. Christianizing the you know, a large chunk of, uh, <clears throat> a large chunk of the world where we even just think of one God, mm-hmm. uh, and there's certain things about him, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he made things, he's invisible, he's big, mm-hmm. he loves, uh, he also judges, you know, and then, I don't, I mean, there's some interesting books on, um, or interesting work on why, uh, especially in the, I mean, it's some of it's quite speculative, so I don't really know. But like, um, why, especially in the Enlightenment period, like people stopped believing in God, and partly because their own a God is like a father in an intimate way, because their own fathers weren't around and like had nothing to do with their lives, uh, and they projected that fatherhood, that sort of fatherhood. Onto God, so God still loves, but just in some sort of like benevolent. Everyone's a, you know, everyone's like, yeah, we're all, you know, sons of God. Everyone's God's child, but like, God doesn't really see things or really care, like in the same way that you know, maybe fathers were just too busy working or doing or, or doing whatever, or maybe in you know bad ways like going to the pub or something, and 
not coming home late, but um, so I just want. Yeah, I wonder if that like sense of there's certain things about God are just downstream of certain like un, unintended assumptions about God are just like downstream from Christendom, and I'm you know I'm glad they're there as opposed to many of the other sort of assumptions. I think lots of people have had about God or gods. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Dick, did you? I yeah. on, the, on, the, on the prior question. Yeah. Um, trust, as Paul says, you trust in the righteousness of Christ uh, that he's going to be seen by God in the righteousness. Salvation is not just pardon. Pardon brings us up to zero morally. <laughs> and from, from a, a, a huge minus number up to zero, uh, if our sins are wiped out. But there's something much stronger than this of approval and love and so on. Adoption, the adoption model is huge. But I, I think if, if we see Paul talking about he trusts in positively that God is going to see him with the righteousness of Christ. Not that he doesn't see anything else. Mm-hmm. He sees all sorts of things. He sees all yeah. kinds of Paul's garbage. Uh, but as we, as we stand legally before God, we are credited with his righteousness. And, and somehow, I feel that the, the Reformation, I'm working on a lecture on this some fine day. But, but, but uh, I think the Luther talked about the great exchange, which was that uh, Jesus takes our sin and pays for it completely. Uh, but, 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 and so we are free from our sin. We then get full credit for his righteousness. Uh, and we're, we're, we're seen in that way before God. It doesn't say anything away about God not seeing us as we live, as we are in the day. Legally given credit for the righteousness of Christ, uh, and I think if we see that as a as a legal issue, more than a God can't see anything but Christ when He looks at us, because um, I mean there's huge. I think in the Old Testament, you know, um, the, the nation is being they're just so awfully, just so terribly deserved this and that and the other thing. But I'm like a mother who looks at her her kids and and and. Uh, can't bear to punish them. Yeah. And must welcome them. And, 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 uh, or, you know, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's talking about, talking about fallen, sinful people. Uh, and so much there about express love for whole persons who are sinners. Uh, so, uh, at the same time, uh, we get more than just forgiveness without a jail free that brings us up to zero morally. We are given credit for it. For the work of Christ and for His for His perfection. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think there's ways that like some traditions have like only talked about or primarily talked about like talked about it through legal metaphors or forensic, and others have only talked about it at, like through like affectionate, kind of gooey, familial, 
And it's sort of like, well, I don't just want the cold, um, uh, like, forensic legal thing. But, like, if I know this metaphor doesn't really work. But if, like, child services come, like, I want, I want like, legal proof that I, I'm adopted. You know, like, I, I, I don't want, like, I want both. Like, I, like, like, that both, yeah, like, that's, I think there's a reason why the New Testament speaks in, in different ways. And I, I think your point's really, like, really good that it's not just bringing, yeah, that, like, like just bringing you up to, uh, here, it's like giving you, giving you something more as well. Anyway, yeah, that was. Holding on solid grip on both. Yeah, yeah. And the legal thing. Yeah. They're both just incredibly. Yeah. Important. Yeah. An option you're great, don't get unadopted when you screw up. And yeah. Smash up the old man's car. Yeah. 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 Was anyone else have anything? If not, I think we'll call it an evening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all for coming. Um,